to a new week and happy Indigenous Peoples Day to you, Dan Torres. To you as well, Buzz. Thank How you. How was your weekend? Weekend was great. It was the Ashfield Fall Festival. We got to uh, to um, hang around and, and uh, shake a lot of hands and say uh, hello. And uh, it was all, a beautiful all 25 day. hands. <laughs> I'm just kidding. And it was absolutely a spectacular day here in Western Massachusetts, and uh, so it was. It was great. Our garden. We're putting our garden to bed. It's just all wholesome outdoor stuff. So it's good. How about you? I watched Aerial Phenomenon. You did. Yes. Over at the Academy of Music, we had Saturday the, night. We had the filmmaker on on Friday talking about that incredible film. What, and what was your takeaway? It was a really well done film. It was really well done. They did a great job putting it together. Well, Better told the story. It was oof, really well done. And what's your view? Um, for listeners who for, for listeners I, who didn't listen what? on Friday, there we'll talk about it in another time when we have more time. That sounds like a good idea. I want to talk a little bit about Happy Indigenous Peoples Day. I want to tell folks that we are going to be talking to um, two folks who are extremely familiar. One of them wrote Question 2 that will be on the ballot on November 8th here in Massachusetts. And one of them is going to explain uh, her position and the position of many people and its impact on both dentists and dental patients of Question 2. But first, I just want to point out that it was... Uh, 530 years ago to, on Wednesday, this coming Wednesday, that Columbus first arrived in the Bahamas. Uh, he was the first European, him and his crew were the first Europeans uh, to set foot in the Americas since the uh, the Vikings uh, uh, landed and set up some colonies in Greenland and I think in Newfoundland back in the 10th century. About 301 years ago, I read, on October 12th of 1791, Columbus Day was first declared and celebrated. It uh, then, 85 years ago, was named a national holiday in 1937 by Congress. Uh, they named the second Monday of October, although Columbus's uh, ship had landed in the Bahamas on October 12th. They named the second Monday of October as a national holiday where banks would be closed, post offices would close, workers would get the day off. Um, and then it was 45 years ago in 1977 that there was a conference sponsored by the United Nations on discrimination. And um, there it was first mentioned that it should not be called Columbus Day. It should be called Indigenous Peoples Day. Over the years, 12 states, 130 municipalities, including our own Boston, uh, created the holiday, named it Indigenous Peoples Day, and it coincided with what many still continue to call Columbus Day until last year when President Biden fulfilled the campaign promise by issuing a proclamation on October 8th of 2021 that uh, made October 11th last year Indigenous Peoples Day and said that henceforth Indigenous Peoples Day will be celebrated on the second Monday of each month. Uh, it was a very good decision in recognition of uh, so many... Uh, of the things that are wrong about pretending that there weren't people who were living here, whose cultures were decimated, whose treaties were violated um, after the Europeans uh, first came here. And, and so I think we should all indeed celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day and recognize that it's a better name for it than, than just Columbus Day. So having said that, I want to turn our attention to the regulation of 
dental insurance here, and we're so lucky. I'd, I would uh, like to start by introducing uh, the, the author of um, the question to, to appear on your ballots on November 8th. And by the way, um, do not forget to register to vote. Um, you can register to vote up until October 29th. Um, if you haven't already registered, please do. It's a, as important a time as any in our history, in my view, um, for us to uh, go to the polls and be heard. Um, it isn't just a right, it's an obligation. And the four questions we're going to have the authors of positions which are articulated in what's called Massachusetts Information for Voters, the 2022 ballot questions um, that Secretary of State Francis Galvin, uh, William Francis Galvin circulates um, to every registered voter. It is time to register if you haven't already, and please make sure to vote. So I'd like to, without any further ado, first introduce Dr. Uh, Muhab Rizkala of, uh, of the Committee on Dental Insurance Quality. Um, doctor, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having us. May I call you Muhab? You certainly can. Well, Muhab, would you please explain to us, I think that you wrote the, the law, explain the law to us so we can understand it, those of us who are not uh, dentists or lawyers. Certainly, and speaking of lawyers, uh, in fact, I and, my, and two of my attorneys actually did the writing of question two. Uh, which is really a thoughtfully designed question that's really meant to serve patients, not only in the state of Massachusetts, but we expect its impact to ricochet through the country and change oral health across the country, because after all, oral health is a part of overall health. We all know that. But, uh, but let me set the table, if I could, a little bit, Buzz. Uh, I represent the Committee on Dental Insurance Quality. I am the chairman of that committee. Um, and I will introduce in a few moments uh, one of the members of that committee, one of the doctors on that committee, that's Dr. Patricia Brown, who is the author of the voter information guide known as the Red Book. She's the author of the in favor argument in that guide. But, uh, but I'd like to express that the committee is composed of a very interesting uh, group. It's five doctors and five patients. And that's very intentional because really as a committee, we represent the sacrosanct balance of the doctor-patient relationship. It was important to us that, we, that everyone was represented at the table in installing question two. Uh, and I should also mention that in addition to representing that committee, I'm really also representing every group and individual that has already endorsed this important ballot question for oral health. And virtually every significant uh, organization in dentistry across the country has already endorsed that, namely the American Dental Association, which has uh, the American Academy of Pediatric Dentistry, the American Association of Oral Surgeons, the American Association of Endodontists, the Academy of General Dentistry, and then locally here in, in, this, in this state, the Massachusetts Dental Society, the Massachusetts Dental Hygienists Association, the Massachusetts Association of Orthodontists, the Academy of Pediatric Dentistry, independent dentists in Massachusetts, oral surgeons and the dentists. I mean, it's a who's who of doctors. It's the doctors that care for you every day. It's the doctors that you trust every day. And so with those endorsements, uh, you know, looking at who is on the yes side, it's important to take a second and look at who's on the no side. The no side is dental insurers. 
That's it. And so to some degree, this becomes a balance of trust. And we're going we're gonna to make the point today, I hope, we'll have the opportunity to show, even though it's through radio, that this is a question of do you trust your doctors and do you trust the math versus do you trust insurers and their fuzzy math? And before you explain a little bit more, we're we're talking with uh, Dr. Muha Briscala of the Committee on Dental Insurance Quality. When you talk about the people who represent number uh, no uh, on number two in that booklet, which is sent by the Secretary of State, uh, it appears to be undersigned by Louis Rizzoli for the Committee to Protect Public Access to Quality Dental Care. You're saying that is an industry, an insurance industry uh, based organization. Is that right? Absolutely. Yes. Louis Rizzoli actually is an attorney. He was hired by the insurers. In fact, Louis Rizzoli is also the attorney behind question three and, and, and trying to stop question three, though that, that has taken a different direction at this point. They've kind of backed off of even defending or even arguing for no on question three. But Louis Rizzoli is a known um, uh, player in ballots and, and whatnot. And that's, and whereas we are just grassroots people trying to serve our patients. Lewis is, is an industry hired person. There we go. So let's talk content. Yes. So let me let me uh, give Patricia, Dr. Brown, the opportunity to read the Red Book argument that she authored. I would love that. This is Dr. Patricia Brown, and happy Indigenous Peoples Day to you, Dr. Brown. Thank you so much. A yes vote expands consumer protection laws that already exists for medical insurance companies, and expands this to the dental insurance. A yes vote ensures better coverage and value for patients instead of unreasonable corporate waste. For example, according to its own IRS 2019 form 1990, Delta Dental in Massachusetts alone paid executive bonuses, commissions, and payments to affiliates of three million eight hundred and two I'm sorry, three hundred and eighty two million while only paying one hundred and seventy seven million for patients. Let's care. just repeat that so people can hear that. That they in terms of executive bonuses, commissions and payments to affiliates, three hundred and eighty two million dollars was paid while only paying $177 million for patient care of the premiums that were paid, according to Form 990. 100% correct. Thank you so much. A yes vote would eliminate this inequity, similarly, similar to medical insurance. This law would require that dental insurance companies allocate at least 83% of paid premiums to patient care or refund the premiums to the patients to meet this standard. Insurance companies will try to confuse the voters by saying that dental insurance premiums will increase. This is false because Section 2D of the law specifically disallows increases above consumer price index without state approval. Stop the corporate waste. A yes vote for fair dental insurance is what we really need. Um, I just have to say, this whole thing of 38% premium increases is just a scare tactic. 
And if anybody takes the time to read this law, they know that it's a pure lie. So we're going to we're going to no take a break. Premium. Yeah, in two minutes we're going to take a break. But let me just articulate that if you look in the voter information guide, which is the information guide, it's what it's called for voters on question two. Dr. Brown is talking about what Louis Rizzoli, we just learned that he is an attorney. Um, uh, he does it under the name of the Committee to Protect Public Access to Quality Dental Care. Dr. Rizzola just told us that, in fact, that is an industry organization that he claims that a 38% premium increase is going to uh, result if you vote yes. And Dr. Brown is saying that is not true. Dr. Rizzola, what do you say about that? So just so we're clear, I, I, you're, I think you're conflating Louis Rizzoli and Dr. Rizcala. Sorry about that. I'm Dr. Rizcala. Oh, and I am did I misspeak? Yes, I misspoke. Yes, I'm on the yes vote side. Uh, Mr. Attorney Rizzoli is on the no vote side, and he is saying 38% will be the increase. And we'd love to actually flesh that out because we want to show everyone where they got that number and how they fabricated that number out of thin air. So do you he believe that there wouldn't be a necessary premium increase if the requirement is that 83% of premiums go to dental care? You're saying that... Just the, uh, just the opposite. Not only would there not be a 38% increase, there would be a premium decrease. And more specifically, as Dr. Brown pointed out, we intentionally built in an obstruction to premium increases. We didn't have to do that. We did that because we wanted to make sure it did not increase. It's built into the proposed law that it cannot increase. There we go. This is very illuminating. We are going to return right after these short messages. And when we come back, I'm going to ask about the role that the Commissioner of uh, Insurance in Massachusetts, or the Division of Insurance, uh, would be playing if we voted yes, if we prevailed very in good. a yes vote. Great question. Uh, and we'll talk about that. Uh, with, Great. right, we will. And forgive me for misspeaking. I knew you were Dr. Riscala, and I knew that it was Louis Rizzoli was the lawyer. I just misspoke. We'll be right back after these messages. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Are spiders creepy? Actually, they're totally cool, super interesting, and highly evolved. So, join us for the show's next edition of the SciTech Cafe, when our special guest will be Elizabeth Jacob, UMass Amherst professor in the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences, and an expert on the jumping spider. Please join us Tuesday at 9 o'clock. Bill Newman, weekdays at 9 and again at 5. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. Buy a mattress online? There are at least a hundred websites that'll ship you a mattress rolled up like a burrito and stuffed in a box. Wait a minute. You and your mattress will spend seven or eight intimate hours together every night for years. Don't you need more than pixels to know what it actually feels like? Maybe you could just lay on the screen and... Hi, it's Robin from Talon Furniture. We mostly sell therapeutic mattresses at Talon. Not Tempur-Pedic, not trying to mislead you. Come to Talon Furniture and lay down on a Therapeutic. I'll leave you alone. You can see how you are together. Therapeutic mattresses are clean. No toxic off-gassing. I've been to the factory in Brockton. 
Yes, they're made by fellow Red Sox fans. You like eating local? Try sleeping local. Talon delivers and sets it up. We don't just drop a big burrito on your doorstep. You won't have to wrestle it through the kitchen or up the stairs. Talon Furniture, a real store just down the hill from Amherst College. Things to do with butternut. Roast it with butter and sage, mash it with butter and maple syrup, stuff it with quinoa, kale, and cranberries, and then there's curried butternut soup. Squash. The season is long, the recipes are endless, and River Valley Co-op is a fall festival of squash. Next time you're there, buy that squash you never buy. Kabocha squash or Blue Hubbard squash. Why? Why not? River Valley Co-op. Everyone is welcome, not just members. And everyone is wild about local squash. Co-ops build economic power. A co-op is a trusted and proven way to strengthen the local economy. The members own it, or the workers own it. October is Co-op Month. Check out our local co-ops, credit unions, worker co-ops, and farmer co-ops. Downtown Sounds Workers Co-op isn't just a music store, it's community. It's where kids take lessons and meet other kids to play with. Where an old slide guitar master meets a fiery young harp player and the blues is reborn. Downtown Sounds Workers Co-op. Instruments, lessons, community. It happens all over Massachusetts. In every home and every community. Be careful in your bike. Learning can happen anytime, anywhere. We'll see you at breakfast this weekend. And no matter how learning takes place in your family's life, Desi is there as your partner. The Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. Never stop learning. Find out more at mass.gov slash back to school. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Department for Elementary and Secondary Education. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. And we are talking to Dr. P Patricia Brown and Dr. Muhab Ruskala of the Committee of Dental Insurance Quality about the Massachusetts ballot question two, so that we can all understand what we're being asked to vote for and how to vote, I will um, I, I will in a minute ask about the role of a commissioner of insurance here in Massachusetts, commissioner of the division of insurance here in Massachusetts with respect to dental insurance. But I first want to say I am a lawyer of almost four and a half decades, um, pretty good reader, even if I occasionally misspeak when I read. But um, I have dental insurance. I have it uh, through a company, MetLife. And uh, I have looked at the policy, and I am always confused. And when I go to the dentist, and whether it's a cleaning or if I have my occasional crown or whatever it is, I really don't understand the co-pays. It, it's very confusing to me. So I guess um, I'll throw that to you, Muhav. Could uh, I don't think I'm that different than other people, am I? Oh, you're, you're not that different. In fact, I would say that that's one of the most important aspects of this law is that it requires not only that 83% be paid out for patient care, which is a very substantiated number, but it also requires a certain amount of transparency so that consumers like you or employers who buy consumer uh, buy dental insurance for their employees representing the entire company are able to make informed decisions so they actually know the value of what they're getting because on paper it looks like they're getting something, but in practice they're always finding themselves empty-handed and nothing left in their pockets in terms of co-pays and premiums. This changes that. They're going to be reducing their co-pays, reducing their premiums, which equals lower out-of-pocket costs so that patients have access to the care that they want when they want it. And if they don't want to spend it, 
people will get refunds of their premiums. Imagine that. That's what we're doing. Refunds of premiums. So uh, we're talking with Dr. Patricia Brown and Dr. Muhab Ruskala about question two. So I just want to ask this question, and whichever one of you thinks is appropriate, take this question, which is it isn't often that we see both the provider and the consumer on a question such as this claiming to take the same position. How is it that this seems to be that if you vote yes, it is argued, and both of you and the Committee on Dental Insurance Quality both contend that both dentists and consumers, patients, will benefit. How is that? Well, let me... I'll let take me, that. You're, you're, asking, you're asking questions that we've kind of prepared for, and that question actually lands in my lap. Um, there are going to be questions that you ask that are that Patricia's... They go into Patricia's lap, but that one's actually my fielding. And that is, in this instance, what we're talking about is a doctor-patient relationship that's being interfered with by third-party insurers, which is a very common thing both in medicine and in in dentistry. But medicine at least has some controls. Dentistry really doesn't have any. But to really get to the heart of your question, why is there such a mutualism for question two between patients and doctors? And the, the answer is simple. As doctors... We want to provide care to our patients. The greatest obstruction to care for our patients is their out-of-pocket costs in co-pays and premiums, okay? If co-pays and premiums were reduced, there would be a lot more patient care occurring. And in fact, dental costs would reduce at the doctor's office. Why? Because more volume of care allows a lot of overhead costs to reduce. This is so win-win for patients and doctors. And where is that money coming from? It's not coming from increased premiums because the corporate waste that Patricia described earlier is amazing. Here's an example. In, according to the Form 990 that Patricia quoted, and she quoted a larger number, but let me show you a smaller number that is egregious. In that exact same Form 990, 2019, Delta Dental of Massachusetts, Delta Dental literally, and I'm going to say it again, literally contributed $291 million to their parent company the same year that they only funded $177 million for patient care. That $291 million, they gave it away. They gave it away because they didn't need it. It wasn't a business. It wasn't about their business. They had a surplus of $291 million, and they only paid $177 million for patient care that same year. Imagine what would have happened if they said, you know what the right thing to do is? This is surplus. Let's give it back to patients, and let's let them decide what they want to do with it. That would have paid the entire next year's worth of premiums. That would have paid all of their co-pays for that year. Okay, that we, we only have message. two minutes left. I wanted to ask uh, Dr. Patricia Brown about the Commissioner of Massachusetts uh, Division of Insurance. So it, apparently the commissioner doesn't play, pay a role now, and why is it important to have the commissioner play a role in setting rates? Basically, that means that no one can come in and suddenly decide to raise rates above the consumer protection, sorry, above the consumer index. So there's going to be somebody who's going to control and make sure that the insurance companies don't continue to cheat the public. They're going to make sure that if there would be any increase, I don't see any possibility of it given the fact that they can give away almost $300 million to themselves. So 
the commissioner is going to be watching this and seeing exactly what can be done. I've never seen anything like this. There's so many things written about this particular law to make sure that it's equal and fair. And that's the reason why I think that all of us should be so thankful. And I have to thank Dr. Riscala personally because he's the leader. He's the chairman. And without him, none of this would have happened. And thank I, you, Pat. I have to tell you, just this Saturday, I was at an international conference, and people in California understand this law. And when I brought it to their attention, they said, oh, don't worry. If Massachusetts can't do this, the rest of the country will. Yeah, Massachusetts so, is a trendsetter here, I think. We're the number yeah. one, the very first people to be able to do this. But now everybody's going to get on board, and people will get the dental care that they deserve. Well, I have a master's in public health, and that's why I'm involved with this. I am so glad that you are. Dr. Patricia Brown, Dr. Muhab Riscala, thank you so much. I think... Um, that um, are, we're certainly, I know I'm more well-informed. I think our listeners are more well-informed. Um, uh, it won't be the first time that I think that, um, that insurance companies appear to be, uh, forgive me, lying through their teeth. It's the right <laughs> word. It's, it's crass, but it's true. As I said it, I was biting my tongue. I don't know. You, you just have to tell the truth. All That's right. Thank you so much for joining us today. Good luck. Likewise. Thanks, Buzz. Everybody, Thank please so register much, to vote Buzz. November 8th. That's Fun question two. two. And go to fairdentalinsurance.org for questions. Fairdentalinsurance.org. Thank you both for being with yeah. us. We're going to be back with Megan Zinn, a really interesting uh, look at books right after these messages. Stay with us. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Attorney General and gubernatorial candidate Maura Healey is staying silent on whether she plans to support removing a 1986 voter law that is leading to nearly $3 billion in tax refunds this fall. Healey spoke to WCVB for On the Record. She also declined to comment on whether she would encourage more migrants to come to Massachusetts. Healey did promise to help create a climate corridor in Massachusetts to help the world move away from fossil fuels and toward renewable energy. The new Soldiers Home in Holyoke will receive $160 million in federal funds. The Massachusetts Executive Office of Health and Human Services gave the official green light to the funds after prematurely making the announcement in August. The grant comes with the expectation of full funding of federal share in subsequent years for the remainder of the project. Governor Charlie Baker last year fast-tracked a $400 million bond bill to replace the post-World War II-era building on Cherry Street. A woman from Westfield has been indicted by a federal grand jury in connection with a hoax bomb threat made against Boston Children's Hospital. Catherine Levy was indicted on multiple charges for the bomb threat that happened on August 30th. She was also accused of intentionally conveying false or misleading information that a bomb was heading to the hospital. According to the U.S. Attorney's Office, the bomb threat caused the Boston Children's Hospital to lock down 
and a bomb squad to search the area. Levy will appear in federal court at a later date. For the rest of today, it'll be partly sunny, chance for a passing sprinkle, highs 62 to 66. Tonight, mostly clear, overnight lows 38 to 42. And the outlook for Tuesday, mostly sunny, highs in the mid-60s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. A food co-op is a different kind of grocery store. A credit union is a different kind of bank. Co-ops and credit unions are owned by the people who shop and bank there. Keep it close to home with local co-ops, credit unions, and worker-owned co-ops. Stop at the Old Creamery Co-op on Route 9. For hot mulled cider, a press-grilled sandwich on house-made focaccia, something sweet from our bakery, or what you need to make dinner. Stop at the shop with the cow on top. The Old Creamery Co-op. At American National, we understand the tried-and-true farm and ranch lifestyle, and what's important to you is important to us. You deserve an insurance plan custom-made to meet all the specific needs of your agribusiness operation. American National offers flexible farm and ranch policies with package options to help better protect your livelihood. We're right by your side. For more information and to connect with a local American National agent, just visit AmericanNational.com. American National Property and Casualty Company and Affiliates, Springfield, Missouri. And today, I'm convening this conference because I believe we can use these advances to do even more to make America stronger and a healthier nation, to achieve ambitious goals and hunger in this country by the year 2030. This is a big deal. The President of the United States just announced to the world that ending hunger and promoting better nutrition in this country is a national priority. I think that's a good plan, and I think we can do it. Meanwhile, our neighbors have to eat today. The Food Bank of Western Mass is there for the over 100,000 neighbors who rely on emergency food each month. And if you want to help support the Food Bank of Western Mass, you can join the March for the Food Bank 13 Thanksgiving week. The federal government is making moves when it comes to fighting hunger, and the Food Bank itself is making moves. From Hatfield to Chicopee, you can move with us locally as we march from Springfield to Northampton on day one, and Northampton to Greenfield on day two. March yourself, start a team, virtually march. Get involved, make some moves. Monty's March 13, making moves. Monday and Tuesday, November 21st and 22nd. Sign up now at Monty's March. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. And so I'm so excited. Megan's in her segment. We have a new direction that we're going in, although it's really continuing in the same kind of direction mm -hmm. we had before. And uh, But we have redubbed it. It's dubbed. Writer's Block. Writer's Block. With Megan's in. We were about to embark on Writer's Block with Megan Zinn. Uh, hope, and hopefully it won't be bad luck for any writer I talk to of throwing them into Writer's Block. Um, but my guest today is Linda Cohen-Leugman. And um, I'm going to do a little introduction and then, then we'll chat. Um, Linda uh, currently lives in the New York area, but uh, she grew up in Longmeadow, Massachusetts. And she graduated from Harvard College and Columbia Law School. Her debut novel, The Two-Family House, was a USA Today bestseller and a nominee for the Goodreads 2016 Choice Award in Historical Fiction. Her second novel, The Wartime Sisters, was selected as a Women's World Book Club pick and a Best Book of 2019 by Real Simple Magazine. And her third novel, and, and just out novel, The Matchmaker's Gift, was recently named a Best New York Book, a Best New Book, how did I get that in there? A Best New Book by People Magazine, and a Best Book of Fall by the New York Post, Parade Magazine, BuzzFeed, and GMA.com. And Linda is going to be at the Springfield Jewish Community Center on Thursday, this Thursday, October 13th at 7 o'clock, as part of their Literature Tour series. 
and she'll be discussing The Matchmaker's Gift in conversation with Leverett-based novelist Jennifer Rosner. And the event is free and open to the public. Pre-registration, pre-registration is required, and um, people can go to the JCC website, www.springfieldjcc.org, for more information. So, Linda, thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to chat with you today. Yes. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about your writing first, and then we'll talk more um, specifically about The Matchmaker's Gift. Um, So I'm very curious to hear about the segue from law to writing historical fiction. I assume you practiced law for some time. I did. It's not not even that interesting of a segue, but I did. (laughs) I practiced law for about 10 years. Um, Eight years were full-time, and then two years were part-time. And I never loved it, though. I have to say, I really never loved it. And I was a trust and estates lawyer. Mm -hmm. So that was like estate planning. And the thing that I liked about it were all of like the family stories and the family gossip. And (laughs) it's like, so I figured out early on that if I had to do it, that would be the only kind of law I thought I could really handle. But I should have known very early on. I think I did that. I really, I loved all the stories, but, you know, figuring out the tax ramifications mm-hmm. of things not for me so it was always it was always the personal side things that I was interested in so the kernel was clearly there for the writing yeah. for writing historical fiction um yes. and what drew you to historical fiction specifically so I didn't know I was writing historical fiction. <laughs> <laughs> um so basically I had an idea for a novel um that kind of came to me when my daughter was six months old and she's 23 now Mm -hmm. so i had that kernel of an idea in my head for about 15 years and i would tell people this story and i would like literally like my husband would be drifting off to sleep and i would say you know that story that i keep telling you well what if this happened and what if that happened (laughs) i would go on walks with friends and tell Mm -hmm. them my story and then um my mom got sick, my mom passed away, Mm -hmm. and then I turned 40, like all within a year. Mm -hmm. And then I was kind of the thinking, if I don't write this story down, I never will. So I started taking a class, a writing class at Sarah Lawrence, which is not too far from me. Mm -hmm. And when I first started taking it, I just took like the only class that fit into my schedule, you know, with the kids and Mm -hmm. picking them up, whatever. (laughs) Um, It was sort of a workshop and we just, a very unstructured workshop. And I wrote my first novel over the course of five years in that class. And then it was just, I was very lucky and I ended up getting an agent and she Mm -hmm. sold it. And after it was sold, then I was told it was historical fiction. (laughs) But for me, it was just the story. It was the Mm -hmm. one story that I knew that I really always wanted to tell. So it just happened that it was historical fiction. Um, And then, you know, the labels kind of get in your head and I was like, hmm, maybe I am a writer of historical fiction. And that's why my next, my second book was The Wartime Sisters. Mm -hmm. That was much more like classic. That I knew for sure was historical. Um, And it's set at the Springfield Armory. So, um, yeah, so, which was really fascinating. And I did a lot of research there and visited there. And it's a lot of fun. Actually, if you go to the Springfield, I don't know if they still have it, but there's a museum there now, Mm -hmm. which a lot of people a lot of your listeners may know. And they had for a while, like a wartime sisters tour of the Springfield Oh, Army. wow. Yeah, they'd give you like a handout and you could walk around, like a self-guided tour. You could you could walk around and see um, where different things in the book were set, yeah. which was a lot of fun. They were really terrific. I'm currently reading the Wartime Sisters and um, I already halfway through it know more about Springfield history than I ever knew before, which is a reflection a bad a reflection on me and my lack of knowledge about Springfield. Um, but I am really enjoying getting um, that that view into Springfield at a different at a very different time. 
Um, it's really interesting. Yeah. Um, I didn't, I mean, I didn't know anything either. Yeah. And I really had no clue about the armory. Like, I mean, I knew it was either. there, but I didn't realize that it was this huge campus. I thought it was a single building. Um, cause we never learned about it in school, even though I went to school so close to it. Yeah. Tell the, um, well, since we're talking about the, that book, um, can we get a little blurb about what that book is about for anybody listening? What would want to know? Yeah, sure. So, well, so my first book, The Two Family House, the setting of The Two Family House, which takes place in Brooklyn, um, was my mom's set based on my mom's childhood home, okay. not the story, but the setting. Mm -hmm. And then when my mother was 18, they actually moved from Brooklyn to Springfield. Mm -hmm. And so the, the Wartime Sisters is about two sisters, um, who grow up in Brooklyn, they're very different and they do not get along, they're opposites. And one ends up moving to Springfield with her husband because he's he's a scientist and he goes to work at the armory um, in sort of the development, you know, the developmental stage, um, metals and all kinds mm -hmm, of stuff mm -hmm. that they, you know, experts on. Metallurgy. Yeah, exactly. And the other sister um, loses her husband in the war and eventually follows her there. But, um, I had wanted to write a book about sisters moving from Brooklyn to Springfield because that was the journey that my mom's mm -hmm. life took. But of course she moved like in 1962. So ah, it was very, mm -hmm. very different, different story. Time period. Yeah. It was a really different time period. And somehow, somehow I wound up at the armory in 19, you know, 42. So it's like a, it's a home front story. Mm -hmm. um, that was, it was, it was a lot of fun. Story. I don't think I would ever write another world war two era mm -hmm. book just because the, the research for those books is really intense. You have to get that kind of thing right. Absolutely. You any, you know, you, you, you have no leeway. People take it very seriously yes. as they should. And so I kind of like my history a little bit lighter. Yes. I'm happy to do research, um, but I like my research to be not quite as intense as that. I can understand that. Um, yeah. So tell us about The Matchmaker's Gift, your new book. Sure. The Matchmaker's Gift is a dual timeline story. So um, it follows two main characters, and it's about Sarah, who is an immigrant. She comes to the Lower East Side um, from Russia in 1910, and she finds very early on that she has a gift sort of for seeing other people's soulmates, mm -hmm. um, not her own, but for <laughs> other people. And it is also about her granddaughter, Abby, who is a lawyer, um, mm -hmm. a divorce attorney. Um, practicing in 1994. She's a young attorney and she has very inconveniently inherited this gift. And of course it's inconvenient because she is a divorce attorney. You know, her business right. is breaking people apart. And <laughs> she, this, this whole um, gift that she has inherited really gets in her way an awful lot. When the story opens, um, Sarah has just passed away and Abby inherits her journals, which she thinks at first might be diaries, but they're not at all. They're more like catalogs mm -hmm. or encyclopedias. They just are records of all the matches okay. she made. And through those, Abby realized, yeah, that that all the stories that her grandmother told her that she thought were just kind of, you know, made up are actually true. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah, it sounds really, really fantastic. Um, what was the kernel um, of the book? What was the, you know, the, the story or the idea or the image that you started with? Yeah, so... This was my COVID book. Everyone has a COVID <laughs> book. Um, so in March of 2020, my daughter was a junior in college and she got sent home. And when she came home, she brought her roommate actually, which was a real like blessing. She was our gift. Like our COVID gift was my daughter and her roommate. And the book is actually dedicated to both of them. So her roommate um, just is just like just such a lovely girl. And it was fun for them because then, you know, at least they felt like they had a little 
company yeah. going through college. And two things happened. The first thing was that the dinner table conversation was really elevated all of a sudden because now I had these two college age young women at home with me. When before I was just with my husband and my teenage mm -hmm. son, dog basically. And they were going right from col a college class to the dinner table. So we were talking about a lot of women's issues that we were not talking about before they came around my dinner table. And you know, their concerns about being in the working world, they wanted to know stories about my work life, they're just the, some things they had faced at school, just a lot of, you know, the just a lot of things about being a young woman in the world today. At the same time, we were doing what everyone else was doing. So we were eating <laughs> around the dinner table and then we were binge watching TV. And our binge at first was called Indian Matchmaking. Ah, yes, which of course. Yeah, I highly recommend it. And when we watched all the episodes, Adele, which is the name of my mm -hmm. daughter's roommate, turned to me and said, you know, my grandmother was an Orthodox Jewish matchmaker in oh. Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. And um, I just found that fascinating. She pulled up on her phone an article written about her grandmother that was in the New York Times in like the 1970s. And I just thought, you know, I kind of want to write a story about a grandmother and a granddaughter and the grandmother's matchmaker. And she said, you know, I, I sort of asked for her permission and she said, that's fine by me. You know, it, it's not about her at all. But um, I talked to my agent about it. I was writing another book. I had a contract for another book. I was halfway done. And my agent, after I talked to her, she called me the next day and she said, I can't stop thinking about this story. I really want to read it <laughs> and I want to talk to your editor about it. So she did. And then they both felt the same way. They both wanted that story. And so I put aside actually the other book that I was working on and just started working on the matchmaker book because they wanted, they were like, we want this one first. And I think it was really because when you think about matchmaking, it's all about connecting yeah, people. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's not, people might think that it's a romance. It's not a romance. I'm a historical mm -hmm. fiction writer. I'm not a romance writer. So I had to come out, come at matchmaking from matchmaking from a historical point of view, which um was tricky to figure out at first, but it was really, I think, the the delight in this idea came from just where we were. Yeah, you know, we yeah. were all isolated and people wanted a happy story. They wanted to read something happy. They wanted to read about connections. And so I got just got to work. Yeah, wonderful. Well, we're going to take a break right now for an ad and we'll come back and learn some more about this wonderful book. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Hearing the verdict and hearing the words racial animus were extremely painful for certainly for myself and for the women and men of the Greenfield Police Department who really do go to work every day to serve the people of Greenfield. 1015, 1400 and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. The pipe creature will be there and the delicate giants. The clay masks, too. Plus, the toilet paper faces. Mum and Shants, the visual theater troupe, a Saturday afternoon at UMass. Mum and Shants celebrates 50 years with a performance of greatest hits and a peek at their future. Mum and Shants, resplendent on the big stage of the Frederick C. Tillis Performance Hall at UMass. 
Bizarre shapes and objects spring to life. Mum and Chance is pure joy for young and old alike. Witty madness, says the New York Times, dazzling and delightful. Get tickets at the UMass Fine Arts Center website. A Saturday afternoon with Mum and Chance, October 15th, 3 p.m. at UMass. Ball is here, and I have two beers to help you celebrate the season. Hi, I'm Caleb Piliatis, head brewer of Amherst Brewing. Our pumpkin ale is brewed with a delicious blend of spices, sugar, and real pumpkins. Lumeister Oktoberfest is our traditional German lager with a full and sweet body. Both beers are available at all Hangar Pub and Grill locations on draft and in 16-ounce cans in Amherst. Ask your server for a cinnamon sugar rim on your pint of pumpkin ale. Pumpkin ale cans and draft are also available across the entire state of Massachusetts. Stop in soon for a pint with us and a four pack to go. When it comes to investing, we're taught the higher the risk, the better the reward. Francis Ram, the money doctor, says it isn't necessarily true. We need to remember that with risk comes the potential for losses, and making up losses can set us back or worse, delay our retirement. You've heard the testimonials for years about how her patented program helps people become 100% debt-free, far ahead of schedule. But did you know that for more than 35 years, Dr. Ram has been helping people retire well without unnecessary risk? Dr. Ram says most people mistakenly accept that in order to earn attractive interest rates, they must tolerate risk and that choosing safety means settling lackluster returns. But it doesn't have to be that way. You can earn competitive rates and minimize taxes without risking a single dollar of your hard-earned savings. Contact the money doctor at Hug Your Money for a free consultation. Call 413-773-3333 or visit Hug Your Money.com. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. We're back. This is Megan Zinn with Writer's Block and my guest, Linda Cohen-Leukman. And Linda is the author of The Matchmaker's Gift. Um, and she will be at the Springfield JCC on Thursday, October 13th at 7 o'clock. And, um, That's the Jewish community. The Jewish community. The Jewish community center, and um, there the event. The event is free and open to the public, but registration is required on their website www.springfieldjcc.org. And um, we're going to get back to talking about uh, the Matchmaker's Gift. I'm interested in. Um, you mentioned um, uh, the research, and were there any sort of wonderful nuggets you discovered while research, whether they ended up in the book or not? Um, yes. So many. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so, so many. So like I said, you know, I came at this from a historical point of view instead of from a romantic kind mm -hmm. of um, point of view. And so the first thing that I had to really do was figure out what time period I was going to set the story. Um, and because, you know, I, I had a I, at first I thought, well, maybe I'll do the 1950s. Everybody loves the 1950s. It's always so fun. I could do it then. But I found um, a virtual exhibit online at the Museum of Eldridge Street, which is oh yeah, I was just yeah, there. It's great, great, yeah, it's great. It's a great old synagogue in New York City. It's one of the oldest synagogues, and mm -hmm. they have a museum there and a great website. And they had an exhibit called "Love on the Lower East Side," and it talked about a wedding um, that happened in New York in 1909. It was the wedding of the daughter of a Romanian immigrant, and he was known as the Pickle Millionaire of New York. <sighs> and, <laughs> 
wedding was like 2,000 people were invited to this wedding. And there was a line that they posted from, from the wedding, an article about the wedding that said, the scent of orange blossoms and roses mingled with the odors of dried herring and pickles. And when <laughs> wow, I read that- Wow, that's so beautiful. Right? I mean, it, when I read that, I just said, well, this is my time period. This is the time period I want to write about. Because I want to write about that juxtaposition mm -hmm. of like orange blossoms and dried herring. So I have a pickle king in my book. If, when people see the cover, there's like a little jar of pickles on part of the cover. Um, and I found out just like sort of, so I found the New York Times article about that wedding. And then I found this other article that was so fascinating, which was a, a piece, it was titled something like Rates for Husbands on the Rise. <laughs> and it talked Goodness. about matchmakers in the city. Oh, and it said yeah. that at that time in 1910, there were over 5,000 professional matchmakers in New York and the bulk of them were men. So it just like shattered that whole idea of like Yanta from Fiddler on the Roof. Yeah. And then I knew what my story would be, right? I knew I was going to write about a young woman and she was going to be going up against all of these men. And that was oh, a lot of fun. Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Um, you know, and one of, the, one of the beauties of historical fiction is that you can tell a story about the past, but also address questions and concerns and events of the current day. And are, do you find that there are current issues that are reflected in the matchmaker's gift? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it sort of goes back to when I was talking about those conversations around the dinner table mm -hmm. with my daughter and her roommate. We were talking about women's issues and, and both of the main characters in my story are really dealing with, you know, finding their place in the world, finding their rightful place at work in a professional setting. Mm -hmm. Sarah, the matchmaker, is trying to make a living. Uh, you know, a bunch of these male matchmakers in the community are harassing her, bullying her, bringing her in, in, in front of a rabbinical court because they want to get her to stop practicing. Because, you know, Megan, when, why would, why would a group of men be upset that a young woman was, you know, doing their job better than they could do it? Never That's happens. Sort of, right? Never happens. Um, so it's very relevant, you know, to everything that these young women I was with, you know, were, were talking about. So it, it has real world right now, you know, Res yeah, re resonance. Thoughts. Yeah. And the same with Abby with the granddaughter character, because she's working as a divorce attorney and it's not what she thought it would be. And she's killing mm -hmm. herself. She's working crazy hours and she's just not satisfied and not really fulfilled. She's just not feeling like she's maybe made the right choice. Yeah. Wow. Um, and so do you have a next book percolating uh, yet or um, is that, is that, too, in, is that too early a question? Yeah, no, I do. I do have an book percolating. Um, my it's it's inspired by my husband's great grandmother who graduated from pharmacy school in 1921, which wow. is pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah right. Like Very unusual. Pretty rare, and a pharmacy is just a fantastic setting because back then, especially your pharmacist was like your priest and your rabbi, and your <laughs> therapist, bartender. You know, so it's got a great setting, and it's sort of about a young woman who's who becomes a pharmacist, and she. Her father's a pharmacist. She's sort of caught between her father's um, huh, sort of devotion to just like absolute scientific formulas and absolute, you know, measuring out everything perfectly. And then um, her great aunt, who sort of is concocting stuff in the kitchen, you know, <laughs> like the light of the moon, like, you know, making like these homemade old world remedies. Mm -hmm. And she's caught so it's a lot of fun. Oh, you have a cold. Well, we're going to mix some orange blossom and some dried herring and pickles. You'll be all right that sounds delicious. <laughs> that would be perfect. And and one quick question before we, we end. Um, what are you reading right now? 
So, oh, I'm reading so many things. I have a lot of books that I'm reading. Um, there's a book called The Witch and the Czar. Um, yeah, by Alessia Gilmore that I that just came out that I just started reading. And then actually one of my favorite books this year is this book called When Women Were Dragons by Kelly Barnhill, which is like speculative fiction. I think it's my really husband fun. just read that. Yeah, it's great. It's great. It's the 1950s and everything is like 1950s, except that when women get really, really mad, they sometimes turn into dragons. Yes, my husband did just read that. I was listening to a bit, a bit of it. Well, thank you so much, Linda. It was a uh, delight talking to you. Um, oh, and again, you. my guest is uh, was Linda Cohen-Leugman, and she will and her she will be in conversation with Jennifer Rosner, um, on, on another Valley um, writer, um, discussing The Matchmaker's Gift at uh, Springfield Jewish Community Center on Thursday, October 13th at 7 o'clock. And more information on their website, www.springfieldjcc.org. And thank you again, Linda. Thanks so much. Yes, and Odyssey Books will be there. Oh, so yeah, thank out. you for saying that. Odyssey Books will be selling books there. Yes. All of your independent bookshops should be handling, should be uh, selling uh, Matchmaker's Gift. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you, Megan. The writer's block. I love the name of this. It's of the working. Segment. It's working for me. It's working. Everybody, thank you for joining us on this Indigenous People's Day, and we'll be back with you tomorrow at 4 o'clock on the Afternoon Buzz. Have a great evening. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Want to support the kind of talk you hear on the Afternoon Buzz? Want to hear your business's message here on WHMP? Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. We'll help you craft a marketing message that'll reach listeners of your favorite WHMP show. And you'll be supporting the local news, Valley Talk, and progressive voices you hear right here on WHMP. Let us know about your message. Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. And add your message to our mission. And hear your message right here on WHMP. Your message at whmp.com. Want to know more about local history, literature, and education? Hilltown Families bi-monthly Learning Ahead Cultural Itineraries offer an easy way to delve into Western Mass culture and traditions. These new seasonal itineraries are produced in Live collaboration local, with the Humanities Talk Scholar for Northampton and, and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. A Northampton Radio Group Station. It's